we got to do what we can at the federal level because there's a lot of power at the federal level. We see that. But there's also a lot of power at the state level when it comes to environmental protection. There's a lot of that respect and that power at the state level is literally built into the legal system in place here in the United States of America when it comes to environmental protection. And so one of the things that we can do is we can grab hold of our state constitutions and the Bill of Rights section of those constitutions called the Declaration of Rights section in some states. And we can use our our power as people to work the process to get added to that Bill of Rights Declaration of Rights section of the Constitution, a right of the people, as you said, to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments, and ensure those rights are given the same most powerful protection as we give to other fundamental rights. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, I'm thrilled to get back to the topic of climate activism with someone we've connected with before, Maya Van Rossum. Maya is the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, a grassroots nonprofit inspiring constitutional recognition and protection of environmental rights in every state, and ultimately at the federal level. She is also the Delaware Riverkeeper, leading the four-state watershed-based advocacy organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, for over 30 years. Since launching her National Green Amendment Movement, New York passed a Green Amendment in 2021, with proposals advancing in 12 additional states. She authored the book, and I'm going to pick it up here, The Green Amendment, here it is, really to help people fight for a clean, safe, and healthy environment at their local levels, at the grassroots levels, to inspire and activate them. Wow. We have so much to talk about today. We're going to talk about the debt ceiling deal and what it means to the go forward plans for a healthy and clean environment and why you might need to be concerned about some of these deals in the background as well. As so often, changes are kind of inserted here and there that don't actually move forward with the will of the people. So I'm gonna invite her up to the stage again. Maya, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. It's so nice to have you. When I saw your press agent come in contact with me, I'm like, I know her. (laughs) Yes, she can come back and let's do it now. So very excited to have you on. In our last conversation, we dove into the content of your book now in its second edition and broadly available. And we talked about the Inflation Reduction Act, something else that affects many people. But today we're here to dig into that controversial topic of the debt ceiling deal. So can you just give us a download on what the consequences really are of this deal and help us understand what we can do about it? So my focus in looking at the deal was the environmental ramifications. I know that there are a lot of other social aspects to it, but that's beyond my expertise. So I won't even try to go there. But to be perfectly frank with you, when the debt ceiling manufactured crisis and battle was going on, it didn't even occur to me that I needed to be paying attention because we were talking about the debt ceiling. We weren't talking about the environment and environmental protection or lack thereof. And so when at the end of the Memorial Day weekend, 
suddenly it became clear that there were all kinds of environmental implications and aspects to the debt ceiling deal, I was quite shocked and found myself quickly having to dig in to really figure out what was happening. And it was, wasn't just a shock to find out that there was anything in there at all about the environment, but it was quite a shock to see how the legislators and the president had misused this process to undermine critical environmental protections. Why am I not surprised? Well, that's sort of the sad state of affairs. But so, I mean, I can give you a quick rundown. So when it comes to funding, there were areas where government funding was sort of put on hold or put on a bit of a, a freeze. That's going to have implications for environmental protections because the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of the Interior, they need funding in order to implement and enforce critical environmental protection laws. As it is, they're funding, and I think we talked about this last time, how their funding had already been undermined under the Trump administration. So they already were operating with too little money. Maybe, you know, things were starting to get better, but now this freeze is really going to continue to have implications for the ability of those agencies to do that critical work. So that's sort of number one. So number one is just freezing non-defense spending for the Environmental Protection Agency and beyond. Correct. Yeah. So number two, there is actually the first major environmental protection law passed in the United States of America. It's called the National Environmental Policy Act. This law is considered really to be more of a procedural law, not a substantive law. And what I mean is it sort of puts in place procedures that have to be followed when the government is looking to take action that will impact the environment, but it doesn't put in place standards, like you can only release X amount of pollution, right? It's more about reviewing. And so under the National Environmental Policy Act, when government officials are undertaking major actions that will impact the quality of the environment, they have to look at what are gonna be the ramifications. What will be the environmental implications of that dredging project, of approving that new fossil fuel project, of whatever it is that they're proposing to do. It's an oversight committee, essentially. Right. It's look at the implications and also look at what are the other options? What are the other alternatives? And what would be the impacts if you implemented alternative A, B, or C versus the proposal? And it also requires that the government has to consider what they call the no action alternative. What would be the ramifications, positive or negative, if we didn't do this at all? So it's about getting good quality information to inform government decision-making. The government does not have to pick the best option after they do their analysis, but they at least have the information. So that's important. That's kind of important, yes. And then the third was something that was a little shocking to me. Well, but let me finish on NEPA. One of the things, NEPA wasn't wiped away, but it was modified in ways that really damage it. So under NEPA, that's the National Environmental Policy Act. Under NEPA, the amount of time and the number of, literally the number of pages that could be used to assess these impacts and these alternatives, there were arbitrary limits put in place, like literally a limit on the number of pages that could be part of either the environmental assessment or the environmental impact statement that was done pursuant to NEPA. These environmental assessments or environmental impact statements, 
different documents for different reasons could actually be written by the industry who is going to benefit from the decision the government's about to make. So they get to write, it's like, you know, the fox guarding the hen house. Government will have to oversee that document, but primary responsibility for that document could be to that regulated entity. And it also opens the door for things like economic considerations to be put into place. So literally, if uh, an industry who's wants to do something that requires government approval, they could start to, to say things like, well, it's going to be too expensive. And because it's going to be too expensive, we don't have to consider the environmental impacts. And they get out from under this informational process. Well, and if they're already limited in how much data they can review, then you're essentially opening the door to cherry pick whatever is going to tell the story that you want to be told in order to convince people, which ultimately, while it might take less time and review, isn't the whole picture. 100%. I mean, you have like explained it so clearly. And neither the government has the full picture nor the people who are going to be impacted. And it also limits the ability, you know, under NEPA, there is a pretty robust opportunity for people to give information and to engage in this process, right? And to understand and to comment on what is the analysis that's been put forth. But if you're artificially truncating the number of pages, the amount of time, and putting in place all of these qualifiers that limit what actually has to be considered in this document based on things like economics and other terms like, is it reasonably foreseeable? And who defines that? You really now are starting to strip away more and more of the opportunities and the protections for public engagement, including those who are going to be on the front lines, on the receiving end of what are the damages, whatever the damages are of that project. So NEPA's now been weakened. And you know what I say is this time it was NEPA, a very iconic, important law to environmental activists and community members, but a largely process review project. Well, guess what? Next time it might be the Clean Water Act. It might be the Safe Drinking Water Act. It might be the Clean Air Act. It might be the Endangered Species Act. It might be all of them because rather these are all iconic environmental, critical environmental protection laws that those on the conservative side of the spectrum have for years wanted to weaken and weaken and weaken. That weakening, of course, is happening in large part now at the Supreme Court, but legislators have been unable to modify those laws in ways that weaken them because they couldn't make it through the legislative process under the transparent eye, right, of the people and sunlight. Well, now in a couple of days, a backroom deal, a very iconic, powerful law was rewritten in critical, harmful ways. So now game on for any other environmental protection law that legislators want a weekend, but they can't do it in the bright light of sunshine and the transparency of the legislative process. So that was sort of number two. It sets precedent for the bad actors to use it as an example and shove more unpopular ideas through with deals. Yes. Exactly. And then, as you said, number three, this really was also a true shocker. So in 
Virginia and West Virginia, there has been a proposal to build a fracked gas pipeline, a natural gas pipeline transporting gas that's fracked from the earth, which is a very devastating industrial process, highly polluting, devastating for the climate, devastating for human health, devastating for the environment. This pipeline called the Mountain Valley Pipeline would travel or, or would travel for three miles across portions of Virginia and West Virginia cutting through mountains and forests and rivers and environments and communities and private property and public property. You know, whatever is in its way would have to be cut and fall. So this fracked gas pipeline could be installed. There have been assessments that when this project, if it were completed, that it would be responsible for releasing 89 million metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalent every single year. So a devastating climate project, as well as a devastating environmental project. And from what I understand, this deal mandates the approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline. So is that essentially a done deal now? Is that what that means? Yes, it is. Essentially, well, not essentially. What this debt ceiling deal did was it mandated that the federal government expedite and issue all essential environmental approvals for this project. All permits, all approvals, permits and approvals that they have been unable to secure up until now, or that they had secured and that the that communities had challenged it in the courts and defeated. All these environmental regulatory requirements are bypassed. All those approvals must be given on an expedited basis. And the ability of the courts to consider challenges to these approvals have now been largely truncated or removed. So communities that have successfully gone to court and challenged approvals given to the Mountain Valley Pipeline Project because they claiming that they did not comply with the law, challenges that succeeded because the people convinced the court that these approvals did not comply with the law and therefore the, the approvals or the permits were wiped away and the project has been slowed down or, or at this point stopped. All of that now just goes under the bus, very literally. And this project does become a done deal with all of its devastating consequences. Okay. So this is why I said it was the most devastating piece. It's because we feel, I think, like as a community of climate activists and of sustainability advocates, like we make progress, we make a little progress, we chip away at that block, we make progress, and then it's one step forward and defiantly two back. There's yet nothing we can do about it. So how do we confront issues like this and remain somewhat optimistic? I mean, how can we as a collective shine more light onto these backdoor practices and prevent them from occurring in the first place? Well, so that's a really good question. And I do want to, just like with the legislation, I do want to emphasize to me, this now becomes legislators' votes for sale. The next time we have this kind of debt ceiling, quote unquote, crisis, legislators of all sorts are going to be saying, ah, you don't get my vote until my dirty fossil fuel project or my devastating dredging project or my harmful whatever gets put into the backroom deal-making process gets put on paper. You get me what I've been fighting for all these years, no matter what the devastating consequences for communities, my the environment, my constituents, future generations, only when you put it in the deal will you get my vote. So that's the groundwork that we've laid. But, you know, so I think that what 
but we have to remain hopeful, right? If we don't, like our only other option is to sit down and shut up. And if we sit down and shut up, then we've definitely lost. So we have to now rise up, right? And be impassioned and do use our democratic process to empower us and empower us in a couple of ways. First, anybody who voted for this part of the dirty deal, vote them out of office, man. And there may have been other things about this deal that people liked and thought were fine, but other legislators could have and probably would have voted for those good things, but not succumb to the dirty deal making. This dirty deal didn't have to happen. The president, we've heard right all that all that talk about what the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, he could have used that and legislators should have forced him to use that before doing inflicting this harm on our communities and future generations. But we need to hold accountable those who sold us out. That's number one. Number two, we really do need to be demanding that reforms do be put in place. So this can't happen again, whether it's the 14th Amendment or wiping away the debt ceiling or whatever it is, we need to be demanding legislative change that prevents this from happening. For those that may be unaware of what this conversation about the 14th Amendment, can you give us a overview of what Biden and his office had to say about that particular piece of this whole puzzle? Yeah. So my understanding was, you know, that in the 14th Amendment, it says that the full faith and credit of, you know, that the U.S. government government's debts essentially cannot be challenged. They cannot be questioned. If you can't challenge them, if you can't write, if they must be honored, then an artificial debt ceiling crisis, like the legislator saying, well, we can't pay our bills because we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. That would be in contravention of the 14th Amendment that mandates that the U.S. government does, in fact, pay off all of the debts that it incurs, that this is a constitutional obligation, that the fact that the U.S. government will do this will not be questioned, cannot be questioned, should not be challenged, and cannot be undermined. I mean, the language I don't have fully in my head, but that's essentially the concept. But this debt ceiling idea saying to the president and the government, you are prohibited from paying U.S. debts, that would be in contravention of the Constitution. And so the president should have said, look, this debt ceiling is in and of itself. This whole concept and the failure to vote for it is unconstitutional. I'm constitutionally obliged to pay our debts. And you, the Congress, can't challenge that or question that. But he never even, and there were legal experts coming out saying that this was very viable, very doable. And the president started to talk about it and then ghosted the concept and went silent. Well, there's got to be a motivation behind that. And this is the part where I get all my skepticism comes on high alert because from the far right in particular, I heard nothing over the last few weeks, but, oh, well, Biden's killing the economy and we're going to crash world markets. And in six months, people are going to be losing their homes again. This is going to be worse than the 2008 crashes of our housing markets, right? Like this is the fear tactics, the fear mongering I've been hearing from the far right side. And while the left side has been still saying some of the same things. Some of the same things like we need to rise the debt ceiling because if we do not, then these are some of the challenges that we will face. Our creditors could basically come and ask for the money now and stop giving us those resources. And then we won't be able to pay for these social programs that we have in effect, including perhaps even some of the benefits that Americans rely on. So as it stands today, how do we even... And, and you may not have an answer for this. I'm asking the question broadly, but how do we even have faith in the process 
when essentially all that we as the public are getting is spin that is doctored to a specific purpose to rile a base rather than to really inform. I mean, that's how I feel at this point. And it ultimately is making me outraged. I think the word is outraged. I also, at the same time, have been watching things that are happening in other spots around the globe, whether it be the issues of dams that we've built in the Pacific Northwest that are crumbling and that our government continues to fund because, well, we always have, and you've got lobbyists crawling in your ear and saying that they need it because, 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 Army Corps of Engineer involvement, et cetera. So it's almost like a government thing that's continuing it rolling to then look at what's happening in Montana. And we have young activists coming with hope forward and utilizing concepts from your work essentially to say we have a right to clean air clean drinking water clean environments to enjoy the great outdoors and not be stuck in a polluted environment that you've created and that we have not so i was hoping that we could talk for a moment about what is happening in montana as a perhaps hopeful perspective because we're talking about a state that is very right-leaning, right? And unfortunately, right-leaning states and the extreme red especially have tended not to protect the environment as much, have tended not to make decisions that are going to introduce more regulation and control and let's just say common sense about how we treat our resources. They've tended to vote in favor of extractive principles that we've all seen really aren't working. So let's start there. Let's talk about this, the suit that is held versus Montana, the young people that are leading it and why it's so momentous. So, and that's a great segue because that is, as you said, that that is that next step of opportunity, accountability, and using our democracy to make change. We got to do what we can at the federal level because there's a lot of power at the federal level. We see that. But there's also a lot of power at the state level when it comes to environmental protection. There's a lot of that respect and that power at the state level is literally built into the legal system in place here in the United States of America when it comes to environmental protection. And so one of the things that we can do is we can grab hold of our state constitutions and the Bill of Rights section of those constitutions called the Declaration of Rights section in some states, and we can use our our power as people to work the process to get added to that Bill of Rights, Declaration of Rights section of the Constitution, a right of the people, as you said, to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments, and ensure those rights are given the same most powerful protection as we give to other fundamental rights, like the right to free speech and the right to freedom of religion, private property rights. I mean, and, and this is a gross comparison, but the right to bear arms. We all see how powerfully that right is protected because it's in the Bill of Rights section of our state and federal constitutions. Imagine if we placed in the Constitution that right of the people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, how powerfully we could use that tool. That right exists right now in Pennsylvania and Montana. And as you said, we got it in the state of New York last year. In Pennsylvania, we use that right to defeat an excruciatingly, frankly, disgusting pro-fracking piece of fossil fuel legislation. In the state of New York, they've been using their newly minted right to help address critical air contamination that was not was being left unaddressed under the existing laws. 
in Montana, their amendment has been used in a variety of ways. But as you said, right now, it's being used by the Our Children's Trust organization with a number of youth plaintiffs saying that we have a constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment. And that includes a right to a safe climate. Now, this kind of litigation has actually been brought in other states where they didn't have green amendments. And when those states were challenged and the courts were asked to dismiss them, you know, pretty much out of the gate, the courts agreed and they dismissed them and said, yeah, there is no right to this. And based on the language in the Constitution, it was dismissed. But because Montana has a Green Amendment with this most powerful constitutional language, which is why I call it a Green Amendment, it's a certain type of environmental rights amendment that meets the key criteria that I've identified in my book and laid out as part of this work. Because Montana has a Green Amendment, when the state said on multiple occasions, courts, we want you to dismiss this case because the kids don't really have this right. The court said no. No, they have a right. First off, the climate is an environmental entitlement, or at least they have the right to make the argument that it should be. And because the youth do have a right to a clean and healthful environment, including climate, they are entitled to the opportunity to go to court and make their case to prove that what Montana state government is doing is resulting in a violation of their right to a safe climate and a healthy environment. And it is the Green Amendment language that has provided the powerful foundation that has allowed that case to with resist motions to dismiss, and it is now advancing to the courts. And so the lawyers for our children's trust working with the youth, right? And some other lawyers from some other good environmental organizations are teaming up to make that case. And it really is, it's going to be historic in terms of making this argument that people do have a right to a safe climate. But for me and my Green Amendment work, right? And it's going to be historic in, in that it already is, but it is going to prove the point that when we get constitutional green amendments added to the Bill of Rights section of our state constitutions, we are putting in place the most powerful protection for our right to a safe climate, as well as other fundamental human environmental rights that we all hold dear in our hearts. But unless we can get it into the Constitution, they're not really enforceable. But we transform that. And Montana, I think, is really going to prove that point, which I hope is going to be, make people get the book, The Green Amendment, go to the website, Green Amendments for the Generations, or forthegenerations.org, the Green Amendments for the Generations organization, so we can work together to get these kinds of entitlements in every state constitution across our nation. So when the federal government sells us out, we can turn around and hold our state governments accountable. Eventually, we'll get a federal Green Amendment. But we're going to start with the states because we can do it in the short term, in the near term, and we can get powerful protection when we do it that way. Well, I have to say, I listened to a podcast episode earlier this week by The Weeds in which they were interviewing some of the people involved and also took comments from the state as well as others, ultimately saying that they felt like there wasn't cause for the suit and that that's what they were going to focus on proving out in court, that these individuals could not demonstrate that the actions of the state were putting them specifically in harm and could not prove that the actions in, within the state were degrading the environment. And so I think this will be very interesting to see play out. 
But at the same time, I had this thought as I was listening to these young activists explaining their case and pleading their enthusiastic activism. And that was what it would be like to be listening to this person from the other side of the aisle that I sit on. And what even it feels like to have somebody who's in their teens and early 20s tell me that this is my fault. Now, I've been an activist since I was nine years old. And I know that you, in pursuing law and in pivoting your focus to really environmental protection, that this is not your fault. <laughs> that collectively, there are many people in our generation and our, even our parents' generation that have continued to fight for the environment, continued to fight for more mindful practices, who have continued to say that the extractive principles of our present capitalistic society don't actually create a future where we can all succeed. So I've listened to some of these individuals and I think on the heels of, of hearing them well, and one part of me is cheering them on and saying, yes, come out and say it. The other part of me is saying, you don't understand how you sound. You don't understand how hard so many of us have worked to continue shining light on these issues, to saying no, to with our presence and our understanding, advocating with every fiber of our being for the things that we believe in. And so I think this is partly the fallacy of youth in a way of we all kind of sound like that when we're 15, 20, 25, sometimes even 30. But the perspective of having been at this fight for so long, I think can also change how you even hear and, and enable you to understand how to try and have this conversation in a way that doesn't alienate the other side of the aisle. Because I feel like that's where we are right now. We have a young, vibrant, activistic community that is willing to say all the difficult things and willing to come out really hard on a specific line and say, you know, how dare you? Just like we heard from Greta Thunberg, right? How dare you put me in this situation? It's you. I don't think we're going to make progress this way. I feel like we need solutions that enable us to reach across the aisle and to say that you're my friend, you're my partner, you're my whatever. Like we need to lock arms and build a solution together. So how are we going to get there if we're accepting money from these giant fossil fuel companies? How are we going to get there if we're we're not able to make this a nonpartisan issue? And so I don't know. This has just been brewing for a while, I think. I'm on the verge of tears, feel a little bit like chilled at the same time because I want to see things change. I want to see us capable of moving the volley and going towards that touchdown and winning a game as opposed to just being stuck at a scrimmage line. Yeah. So I'll tell you, that's one of the things about the work to get a green amendment. So the courtroom is a different place in space, right? And that battle is a different place in space. And I will say that when we achieved our victory against the very pro-fossil fuel law that was passed by the Pennsylvania legislature in 2012 and signed by the, the governor, there was a very conservative court in place in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, led by an incredibly conservative chief justice. And yet this powerful, beautiful opinion that was written that breathed legal life into Pennsylvania's constitutional Green Amendment and set me on my path of founding this Green Amendments for the Generations movement, writing the book and all of that. It was that conservative chief justice who wrote the opinion in these 
beautiful, powerful words. So one, as you said, right, making the case, we can change hearts and minds, but in order to be able to have the opportunity to make the case, we have to have the legal foundation. And so that's what the Green Amendment does. It provides that legal foundation. But in the effort to work towards a Green Amendment, what I see in the 15 states from coast to coast, including in the Hawaiian Islands, where we're working, there are states of all different political persuasions. We have Green Amendment proposals, not just in places like New Jersey and Maine and Washington state that are traditionally thought of as more environmentally leaning, more liberal, but we have Green Amendment proposals advancing in Florida. That one's advancing by citizen petition. The people are grabbing the power and doing it through signature. We have Green Amendment proposals in New Mexico, in Iowa. We have proposals that were put forth this year in Nevada and Texas. There's a proposal in Arizona. And no, it's not moving very quickly, but it's there. And what I see on the ground, we have a proposal in Delaware, right? We have, and what I see in the communities that are working to get these proposals adopted by the legislature and then accepted by the people like we had to have happen in the state of New York or in Florida. It's about convincing people to sign the petition that's necessary to get ultimately get the Green Amendment on the ballot before the people. People are going into different communities with people of all different political persuasions, all colors, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all wealth categories, and all different kinds of jobs, farmers, business people, developers, and are having really good conversation that trying to use the terminology that meets people where they're at. Talking with the farmer who may traditionally be viewed as more conservative and therefore perhaps more opposed, but about how the farmer needs clean water to do their work, how farms and farmers have lost their entire livelihoods, their entire farms, their entire cow herds due to PFAS contamination and how devastating that's been. And coming together in conversation about this idea, just as you said, right? This is not a partisan issue. This is a people issue. We all need clean water and clean air. We all need a healthy environment, right? To have beautiful, joyous, healthy lives and including jobs and economic income. And so sometimes the conversations are really hard and very challenging, particularly when you're talking with certain kinds of legislators or frack gas industrial operators, they're not going to come around. And we just have to acknowledge that. But so many people recognize that we all really are in the same place, in the same space when it comes to the environment. And we all do need a clean, safe and healthy environment. And so it really is beautiful to hear those good conversations. When it comes to advocacy, right, and how people advocate for the things they care about, I am often asked to either change the way I advocate or I'm asked to say, well, Maya, you're the leader. You should go talk to everybody. You should tell them how to advocate. Tell them to bring forth facts and figures. Tell them to be reasonable. Tell them not to bring forth their poems and their art. Nobody wants to hear their songs. And then they'll say, only the young people should advocate on this issue. Only the elderly should advocate. Only people of certain political persuasions or certain races or ethnicities or people who live in certain geographic locations, only they should advocate on this issue. But I really have this belief that we need all voices 
old people coming and advocating in the way that works for them. Because on the other side of the aisle, when it comes to the decision makers, they're all different personalities too. And some of those legislators, they're going to react to the angry, hold accountable. They're going to be like, they might not at first, but they're going to think about it, right? Like there are a lot of personalities. I tend to be one of them. Like you come right at me. I might be like, whoa, but I'll think about it. And they're going to be some who really, they need the facts and the figures or some who don't advocate with that beautiful poem or song or the heartfelt story and the tears, right? The decision makers all hear and respond to different kinds of messages and messengers themselves. And so we need actually all the different voices and people advocating the way that it just naturally comes forth out of them so that it is as powerful and convincing as it possibly can be because they're the ones owning it. And when we have that diversity of voices, we are going to have a way to connect with all of the diversity of decision makers that we ultimately need. So that's my belief. And that's what I've seen in the world. And I'm often struck. You can see how decision makers respond and react differently in the moment or over time to different kinds of advocacy and different kinds of messengers. And I feel like it really works when we all do it the way that works best for us, even when sometimes, you know, and when sometimes people are advocating, like they're coming at me and suggesting like I'm, you know, haven't done enough or whatever, or using broad language where it might seem like I'm swooped up in the category of people they're talking about because I'm 17 in my heart and in the way I behave, but I'm not really 17. You know what? I just say, Hey, I don't own that because that's not me. So I don't know who you're talking to, but you're not talking to me. And I just sort of let it be directed at whomever it is that they're speaking to. Well, I think that's good advice. I also just do think we need more voices, more women of our age that are standing up and not pushing it off on the younger generations. Because again, we have the perspective of the years that we've been at this and maybe thinking about other ways to get the message across that might, let's just say, land a little differently, be heard a little differently open the door to consideration in a new way. Because when you are easily labeled as an idealist activist, then I think there's just some people, and in particular, those that don't agree with you will automatically just dismiss the message. And I think that's something we have to break through with everybody. I know it will take a lot. I mean, I was thrilled to see that recently when I interviewed Sephora Berman on this show and talked about the reality of the fossil fuel treaty and, and why we need to work so hard to hold these companies accountable and have the hard conversations and be in the boardrooms and do all the work was so critical. It then got picked up by Donna Grantis, who's a musician, and she chose to well, really start an entire album that she's working to release where she takes the words of activists like Sephora Berman and plays them to music to reach another audience. And she made the point in her interview with me, she finally came on the show just a few weeks back. She said, those facts and figures that you're referring to just a little bit ago, Maya, those are going to speak to one kind of person, but music and the arts will speak to another. I think we need to do our very best to open our hearts and our minds. And I think we need to 
as a species and as a people really try a little harder not to just label one another and shove each other in a box because it's and we're not going to make progress that way and i think sadly even the word progress has become something that is labeled as the progressives and you know far left this that and the next thing but progress is just movement forward it's positive change and i think we should all advocate for positive change Again, I, I call it the common sense metric. Like what makes sense? It makes sense for everybody to care about this, to care about clean air, clean water, basic protections. But then at the same time, you have Texas ruling that sanctuary cities can't exist and your laws there are unenforceable and it's a mess. You know, I mean, and I have sat in the room when somebody stood up, more than one person, and said that it was ridiculous, ridiculous that we would protect the right to clean water in the same way we protect the right to free speech. And like said it in such, and I'm thinking to myself, free speech is really powerful and important in a democracy. And it's one of the reasons it is how people get their voice and how we make change. But to suggest that our ability to drink the quality water necessary to keep ourselves alive so we could actually participate in that free speech. Isn't that a little bit odd? Oh, and also the other one was that we would compare it to freedom of religion, right? That somehow that also was absurd. And I just, you know, it is, as you said, it's just, it's striking. And I think it's important for us to, as you said, try to have conversations where we're meeting people where they're at, letting different people advocate in the different I mean the truth is there I've heard plenty of legislators say they're just kids <laughs> right it's again that's what I'm getting at it's easy to dismiss but I've also heard plenty of legislators say well you know he's so old I mean they do and you can see the dismissiveness when a black person comes up to speak in some I mean you can just see it in the body language from some people right you can see so it's sort of like I don't know what is it like I think of how nerves right you have receptors and neurons or whatever and different receptors or neurons could connect in different ways and that's how I think about the advocates and the decision makers is if we have everybody there then we're eventually going to find the right receptor and neuron to come together. And I've had people say, really been really very grotesquely dismissive of people who have come forth with their art, people who have come forth and sang a song or read a poem that captured the essence of what they were trying to communicate about a pipeline or something. But at the very same time, when that disregard is obvious on the face of some and you hear about it you know, later, at the very same time, when I'm thinking about one particular moment when a woman came forth to the microphone, clearly very nervous, and her voice was shaking, and she just very quietly started to sing her song. And she sang it and got a little bit louder, but not much louder. It wasn't like she came to own it. She was nervous. But when she was advocating, even though you could see the disregard on the face of many, you could hear a pin drop in that room when she took the microphone. Not when others took the microphone to talk about their facts and figures. So I agree with you. The, the power of art is very much there. And by some, it will be embraced. And by some, it will be dismissed. But I also agree with you. It's really important for those of us who have been engaged for a long time and have a lot of 
experience and knowledge and abilities that we not allow ourselves to be sidelined by anybody. And that we own, as you said, that we own our voice. So I'm with you on that. Well, when I hear things like somebody says, what do you mean? Nobody should have a right to clean drinking water. I think bought by pharma, bought by for the pharma industry. Is that it? Huh? Who's talking in your ear? I think fossil fuels, fossil fuels much. <laughs> well, you know, and just keep people sick. Then, you know, in a way, keeping them sick funds the entire pharma industry. Because if you don't have clean drinking water, if you don't have good food, then guess what? I mean, you go to Taco Bell for your dinner, you pay a dollar for a bean burrito, you know, you're not getting adequate nutrition, you end up with arterial degradation, and you're going to the doctors and that whole business is getting your health and vitality and your dollars. It's a sad reality. So I agree. We need that. You're only going to get good quality food grown in good quality soil with good quality water. And as you said, if you can't get those good vegetables or you can't get those good quality nutrients in your body one way or another, you say you fall prey. Yeah, it's really sad. And it's like, it's a vicious cycle too, because what might start with something as simple as saying you need to be able to have access to clean air, clean drinking water. I mean, I think everybody should be able to go to their tap and open the spigot and get water that's safe and clean. And then we're not producing the same level of plastic waste or whatever, because we're going and getting Alhambra jugs, these giant things delivered to our house every few weeks to just have drinking water. That's, and why should we have to pay money for that? Shouldn't this be a public utility that we have clean and safe drinking water? I mean, we could just keep talking about this. I'm just, I think my, um, I'm a little angry today, just a little bit. No, I think you come off as very wise. Wise and caring. That's how I view it. <sighs> I just wish we were in a different space. I didn't realize until I, again, got this reach out from your team that the debt ceiling was even related to what is happening with environmental protection. And so the fact that that came as a broadside surprise is just, it's so unsettling. Well, and you know, and one of the reasons why they got away with it is when you listen to the news reports, right, on all the news outlets, did you ever hear them talk about the environment? Not once. No, and I tried really hard, and I'm sure others did as well. And I only the day of and or the day after. But if people had known about it. And by that time, I was focused on wildfires in Canada. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm, I'm like, what is happening in Canada? I'm heading to New Jersey this week. And I'm like, God, the smoke plume is, I'm probably going to be there and see that and experience it. And just this knowledge that while California, where I live, and we were evacuated from our home, and then we're ravaged with floods this last year, which is cost an incredible amount of financial resources on my bank account to help solve for those issues. Like just one thing after the other from fire to flood. And now people making baseline comments of, oh, well, it's cold in June. <laughs> Global warming, not such a thing. You know what I mean? I'm just like, come on. And then of course, because of the way our environment works and the global society we're in, you know, fires have just shifted a little bit to somewhere else because they didn't get the water that we got too much of. And so now we have these continual issues we face. And I'm a little tired of the skepticism around the human effect of climate change as well. But well, as you said, but we have pathways and we're going to take advantage of them. 
and make a difference. And you've got the second edition of this book out in full circulation. So the Green Amendment, the people's fight for a clean, safe, and healthy environment. My hope is that we'll get one passed in California. So we don't have to keep having these conversations about what's happening in my local environment. But yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. I know we've kind of gone on a couple little meandering paths here, but I wondered if there was something that you wanted to leave our audience with as a closing thought. Oh boy. I mean, I really, I think just as you said, I really want to inspire people to be engaged and truly find that issue that you care about that resonates. Is it the climate? Is it a species? Is it that special wetlands in your backyard or in your community that perhaps is being threatened or needs a little bit of loving care, some native plants and just get active, do something every day in your community or with your government to make a difference. Making personal change is important. Don't get that plastic water bottle. But also, we have to hold our government responsible to make it as easy as possible for us to do better and to mandate that business operations do better. Fantastic, Maya. Thank you so much. Now, I want to direct people to your website for thegenerations.org. They can pick up a copy of your book there. They can also find out what other states have green amendments that are currently in progress and what they can do to help support them. So I think that's a fantastic tool. I just want to say again, I appreciate all of your work and the fact that you're just willing to shine the light on these issues and go to Montana and witness everything that is happening there too. So I'm just so thrilled to have had the chance to connect with you again today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoy it. To connect with Maya Van Rossum and to get your copy of The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean and Healthy Environment, visit ForTheGenerations.org. It is critical that we keep this conversation going with small actions, like sharing this podcast with your community or notes to your Congress people. You could even go on a lobby day or speak up at your local city hall. There is hope after all, even when you are as angry as I am today. <laughs> And we can all play a role in resolving our global crises and our environment. I'll be sure to include links to Maya's important work, including direct links to the microsites that she's organized for the passing of green amendments in different states, just to make your journey easier. Just visit caremorebebetter.com. While you visit, I hope that you'll let me know what you thought of today's episode. You can leave me a voicemail message. You can tap that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner, or just send me an email note directly from the site. I'll be happy to answer any questions you have, and I'm always thrilled to hear from our community. Some of the guests that I've featured have come specifically from you, so I just want to thank you for that too. Thank you listeners and watchers, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can even pass a comprehensive green amendment at the federal level. We just have to keep at it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.